Welcome to episode 104 with my guests, listeners John and Megan Bremen. My name is Paul Gilmartin. That was very very Bill Curtis-like, the way I uh, introduced them. That There might be a murder. Uh, my name is Paul Gilmartin. This is the Mental Illness Happy Hour, 90 minutes of honesty about all the battles in our heads from medically diagnosed conditions and past traumas to everyday compulsive negative thinking. This show is not meant to be a substitute for professional mental counseling. It's not a doctor's office. It's more like a waiting room that doesn't suck. The website for this show is mentalpod.com. Um, all kinds of stuff there on the uh, on the website. Uh, MetalPod is also the name you can follow me at on Twitter. Um, if you want to know when I'm going to be performing somewhere, or sometimes I'll do like a fear off or a love off on, on Twitter. If you follow me on Twitter, then um, you can be a part of that. One of the things I've been talking with the listeners about is trying to do some type of um, internet meetup, either via uh, Google Plus Hangouts or... Um, Maybe doing like a, a tweet up where you do a hashtag M-I-H-H uh, for Mental Illness Happy Hour and uh, maybe have like a specific time set aside. Uh, to talk about it more, I created a thread in the forum called Meetups. Um, so if you want to go check that out, if you haven't been to the forum in a while, please go check it out. I created a whole bunch of new threads there that hopefully will accommodate a lot of the requests that you guys have been uh, have been making over the last several months. And I deeply, deeply appreciate those of you who do participate in the forum because not only do you bring comfort to to other people in the forum, but you bring comfort to me too because sometimes I uh, I need to go there and kind of uh, vent and um, and connect with uh, with people. Um, there are surveys on the website. You can go uh, take those. Thank you so much to those of you that are have been taking those, and thank you so much to those of you guys that uh, have been collecting audio clips and have been keeping the spammers out of the forum, and um, especially the transcribers. You guys have been doing a great job. I really, really appreciate it. And, of course, the, uh, the donors, the one-time and especially the monthly donors. Um, you fucking rock and can i just give some love to australia and canada um the majority of our listeners are overwhelming majority of our listeners are in the united states but a um a large proportion uh, a disproportionately large uh, number of the monthly donors are from canada and australia and i just want to say i fucking love you guys so thank you and um and I don't want anybody to feel bad about not being a monthly donor. Sometimes I'll get emails from people that are broke and they apologize. Do not feel bad. Do not feel bad. Um, where do I want to start? How about, let's kick it off with a survey. This is from the Shame and Secrets survey filled out by a guy who calls himself Hopefully Redeemed. He's straight. He's in his 30s, was raised in an environment that was a little dysfunctional. Uh, ever been the victim of sexual abuse? He writes, yes, and I never reported it. When I was around 12 or so, my aunt was drunk and took me into the bathroom to proceed to slip me the tongue. I knew what was happening, but just kind of laughed it off. I told some people, and there were laughs shared, but it's pretty insane when I think about it. Uh, deepest, darkest thoughts. I believe I have a lot of self-hatred in which I need to seek therapy for. In fact, I went to see one psychiatrist recently who basically just kept throwing his pen down and rubbing both of his eyes with his index finger and thumb. I could tell he thought there was a lot wrong with me and didn't want to deal with it. I never saw him again. 
I have a lot of anger towards myself for not allowing for not following my dreams. But this is due to the fact that I received brain damage from Paxil withdrawal. It really is quite a long story, but since I quit the drug, it's been mental agony. There has been a lot of healing, so I'd like to say that for anyone out there dealing with the withdrawal, there is hope. I have dreams where I'm looking at my own face in a mirror and I'm gritting my teeth and growling. I wake up and I'm still growling. I can feel it because I'm mad at myself. Deepest, darkest secrets. I learned about sex from a very early age. I grew up with four older half-siblings, three of which are brothers. They would bring their girlfriends home and I would hear them doing things with them. It was pretty quickly that I learned what it was they were doing considering I saw spank mags around the house and I think I learned to masturbate around the age of nine, maybe even a little earlier. I got turned on at a very early age. At age eight, I was in a tent with my two older aunts and a local girl who had a crush on me. They made us make out. I didn't really know what I was doing, but I remember being excited as they encouraged me to kiss her. That stuck with me to this day. Probably explains why I have an attraction to little girls. Although I know I would never act upon such a desire, I can't help the attraction. Every time I hear the word pedophile, I shudder, knowing that if some of my close friends knew this about me, that they would label me as that they would label me as one. Uh, my fiance knows about this as I made sure if I was going to marry someone, they need to know my deepest and darkest secrets and that if they didn't run, they'd be the one. Um, what sexual fantasies are most powerful to you? When I was younger, around 10 or 11 years old, my parents' friends would visit frequently and would bring their son and daughter who were about a year or two older than myself. To this day, I still fantasize about having sex with both of them at the same time. Uh, would you ever consider telling a partner or close friend? Uh, he writes, yes. Do these secrets and thoughts generate any particular feelings towards yourself? He writes, it's a battle. I don't think it's something that I can change about myself, so I'm learning to accept it and continue to know that nobody gets harmed in the making of this life. However, I'm going to continue to seek counsel and therapy. I've become convinced that it works because of this podcast. Oh, that's very, that's very sweet. And I, I can't tell you how much joy it brings me when I get emails from people who have taken that step and reached out for help and are finding that it is it is helping them. Um, this next survey is also, this is going to be kind of a, a survey heavy uh, show just because I feel like it. How do you like that? A little bit of attitude coming at you from the San Fernando Valley. This is filled out by Susan. She's uh, Bisexual in her 30s, was raised in a stable and safe environment, um, uh, was the victim of sexual abuse but never reported it. Deepest, darkest thoughts. Thoughts of my daughter being violently killed bring me a feeling of calm because people would fuss over me. I sometimes wish my brother would die so I could be the savior to his wife and kids and move to their town. I sometimes dream of getting naked in a bar and allowing all people there to have a wild to have wild and violent sex with me, using me any way they want to. I sometimes wish I could get cancer to go through chemo, losing all my body hair and 20 kilograms. Deepest, darkest secrets. I've had sex with different people on the same day. I gamble almost everything I have. I stole from my parents and blamed my alcoholic father for it. Um, sexual fantasy is most powerful to you. I fantasize about being publicly humiliated, getting naked in a bar and letting everyone do anything to me, no matter what. I also fantasize about being loved and held. This can be as powerful as the above. Uh, would you ever consider telling a partner or close friend? She writes, no, I don't have that kind of trust, although I have one friend who would totally understand. 
Do these secrets and thoughts generate any particular feelings towards yourself? She writes, both make me feel wrong as I don't believe I deserve to be treated that badly or that well. Um, any comments to make the podcast better? I'd love to hear a gambler. I would too. So if you're out there and you're, you're in the uh, Southern California area or you're going to be visiting here and you're somebody with a gambling issue, uh, roll the dice. Come see me, huh? Ugh. That's all I got is that. It's my podcast. I can fail when I want. This is an email I got from a young man named Garrett. God, one of my 100, a young man. Um, Garrett writes, I'm a 20-year-old college male student and 20-year-old male college student. I was diagnosed with depression roughly three and a half years ago. However, I feel I have suffered with the illness since I was about 12. I tried to type some events out and spent a while doing so only to read uh, that they literally made zero sense. The timeline of everything is just a madhouse. I still am really struggling to this day. However, recently I actually sought help by my own will and I owe most of that to you and the show. I was recently labeled with an eating disorder after seeking attention and I'm really struggling with just handling it all. I think that is the biggest thing with mental illness or just experience. Everything just seems to be like a whirlwind of emotions and uncontrollable thoughts. It's like having OCD and having someone come into your house, disrupting and ruining everything you try to do and keep sane while being tied down in a chair with your mouth taped shut. That is how I feel. I know this email is really poorly written, but unfortunately, that's just how my head is at this point. Thank you for everything. I'm going to try and continue to work through this and hopefully one day beat it. Sincerely, Garrett. And he puts in parentheses, the most awful email author in the world. And I had to write him back. I said, Garrett, I love your email. It reminds me so much of me, especially when I was younger. You sound like a great, sensitive kid who is really seeking peace and serenity. And let me tell you, of the things we have control over, that, hands down, is the most important. I've been seeking for 25 years. The roads have been hard and bumpy, and sometimes I get lost. Sometimes I drive backwards. Sometimes I break down, but I always get back up and trudge forward, and I wish the same for you. I found your email to be quite articulate, even though you don't. I think it's a testament to how deeply our dep depression and low self-esteem can affect us. In a nutshell, you made total sense, especially emotionally. So a big hug to you, Garrett. And before we get to the interview with, uh, with John and Megan, I want to share so something from the body shame uh, survey filled out by a woman named Megan, not the Megan from the interview. She's 25, she's straight, and uh, she writes, my whole life I've been chubby. I hated my stomach, breasts, and thighs for being thick and covered in stretch marks. Everything changed last year when I had my daughter. She is my first, and my body hate turned to body love when I saw what was happening during my pregnancy. I realized how beautiful my body is. It can actually bring another human into this world. It can feed that human and provide arms that hold and love that human. I got bigger during my pregnancy. I got more stretch marks over my breasts, stomach, and thighs. But they weren't ugly anymore. They were beautiful reminders of what came from them. Every stretch mark over my stomach is a reminder that I had a home for my daughter. That she was safe and warm and loved in her tiny home until my arms, although they might be thick and stretched, could hold and love her. Every human being has weird thoughts going through their head. Oh, God, it's 
so embarrassing. I'm afraid I'll never get another job again. That I will die and will have not been special. My brain has the gift of seeing the terrible. A million pound tourniquet being turned against my chest that was constant. Then I started sabotaging my own career. Wanting to die and... To stop him from feeling any joy. <laughs> that is... Very uncomfortable in my own body. I ended up becoming a male prostitute. And what I became was an animal. They took away my shoelaces. I became chaos. Like it hurts. I just want to go. I just want to leave. You have no idea what a small part of your life this is. If you go to a support group, it's like creating a family that you didn't have. I mean, life is one percent event. My body was abused. Ninety-nine percent judgment about that event. But they couldn't touch the best parts of me. But the world is a little bit wounding. It's also glorious. It does always get better. It really does. I'm here with John and Megan. Bremen and John had contacted me about was it about a year ago? No, it was actually only about two months or so ago. <laughs> couldn't, have been, <laughs> couldn't have been further. Nice start, Paul. <laughs> he had contacted me a decade ago, um, and you were just kind of describing your your family situation and. Um, I said, if you ever get out to L.A., shoot me an email. And you said, well, my sister lives out in L.A., and she might be interested in coming on and doing uh, the podcast with me. And I thought that would be a great idea because we've never had siblings talking about. Well, just, uh, you know, with. Um, we, we can both relate. We both have our own issues. We've always kind of well. We didn't used to get along. Uh, um, no, as as children, we definitely did not get along. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah. yeah. We were uh, termed until, the Bickersons until we yeah. uh, both moved out of the house mm-hmm. and only saw each other on vacation or <laughs> holidays. So. But even still, I feel like we didn't really have a connection. So this, I mean, yeah, we we're kind of true. developing for the past few like Couple past years. years. I think really since um, we'll get into it more. But yeah. your um, you know, extensive outpatient treatment yep. in Colorado. Yep. That was uh. That kind of sealed mm-hmm. our relationship mm-hmm. a lot, and and I'd just like to, to preface it at, at, at this point too, or interject whatever the whatever the verb uh, would be that the purpose of this podcast and this is directed to the listener, not at, at, at you guys. The purpose of this podcast isn't to lay blame on parents. Um, the purpose is to just t- try to identify dynamics that happened in our past and say how do we move forward with who we are today, and what we know about ourselves. And I think it's important that we have that information. And I just I just think that's an important distinction to make because somebody listening for the first time may think, oh, this is going to be Blame the Parents podcast, which, which I, I suppose if you listen to enough of them, some people <laughs> might feel that way. But um, I think we also, no matter what our circumstance is that, that we were raised in, and, and I'm speaking about uh, about myself. At a certain point, I have to take responsibility and say, I am now an adult. I have this information, and what can I do with it now? So I just I just wanted to make that um, clear to to any new listeners that that's the feeling healthier and better about ourselves and less alone is the goal of this podcast not not to lay blame on people so i just yes. i just wanted them to and and i agree completely i mean we're not here to to bash <laughs> anyone um but i find it um what i've been going through recently i find it very interesting 
um, and I'm in I'm in therapy right now, and it often comes up. It's it's more interesting to me how um, my childhood has affected what I'm going through right now. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. twenty twenty five years ago, um, it's had an impact. It's still impacting me mm-hmm. uh, to to a great degree, and I'm I'm working through that. Yeah. Um, and uh, again, like you said, I'm uh, I'm an adult now. I have to make my own decisions. I can't just lay blame to you know anyone in my past yeah and just lay in a pool of self-pity and say you broke me exactly i'm unfixable uh i'm just going to hold on to this resentment which is its own sickness that a lot of people get get trapped in um well let's start let's start from the beginning uh you chicago is that where you were born and raised that's right um what what was your childhood like um pretty stable um, I guess we'll get into that more too. Uh, it was very well stable. We were taken care of, upper middle class. Um, yeah, I would say definitely stable on the outside. There's five. I'm the first kid. John's the second. There's three younger brothers. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we lived in the city, nice house. Yeah, we were physically taken care of. Emotionally, maybe not so much. Yeah, we got our basic needs met. Yeah, definitely met. Your, um, your basic practical needs. Yes. Yeah, totally. We had a roof over our heads. Yeah. We had a table every night. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, they did a lot of effort to, you know, we had fun birthday parties, mm-hmm. you know, homemade costumes for Halloween. You know, there's definitely family vacations. It's, yeah, we yeah, had pretty Pretty, pretty typical. Mm-hmm. Okay, so you weren't uh, Not n- abused. N- neglected and, no. and abused. No. no. Okay. Um, no, no, no. Um, but there there are the, uh, looking back, the, yeah. the emotional components that just weren't there. Yeah. Uh, that you can see even on TV or in movies or talking to friends. Um, that those needs were met for them, but maybe not so much for us mm-hmm. here and there. Um, uh, those needs were met for whom? Um, other people going through similar situations. Like I have major depression mm-hmm. diagnosis. Um, I'm not sure. Yeah, I would say, well, you can obviously speak more for that, but yeah. John's um, mental health background definitely was more prominent in the family and started a lot younger. For me, it was I was like pretty normal, and even so, I'm um, recovering from an eating disorder, mm-hmm. and even throughout, even up to today, I've been. Um, it basically started when I was 18, so what, 14 years ago. Um, but throughout my recovery, I think a huge component has been that no one, I've always, especially with our family, no one understands what it is. I look normal. Um, it's that's like just our family um, is in a lot of denial. And so there wasn't really support. And I think, yeah, when John was a child, it was much more like there was a problem. They need to look at it. And it was dealt with to a certain extent. Uh, we did get uh, – I started seeing therapists here and there or doctors at uh, about 10 or 11 years old uh, because I was basically hitting my head against the walls and they didn't know what to do. So there was that, that element of, well, we'll take you to a doctor. We'll diagnose it. But there was never any follow-up. There was never the distinction between, like, going through childhood or teenage years and, you know, what's the difference between being very depressed and also, you know, growing up. Did you get the feeling that your parents couldn't understand it or didn't really want to understand it? Well, there was that kind of shroud of normalcy that our family wanted to project mm-hmm. at all times. Yeah, I always describe my upbringing as a facade. 
Mm-hmm. When my our parents got divorced, what eight years ago? Or uh, something? Yeah, more more recently than yeah. they should have, perhaps. And when they did, all of my friends from high school were like, "Your parents?" You know, like no one expected it. Um, and even I think we were. Well, I guess we weren't surprised. Um, when I was in high school, I was very busy taking care. I was the oldest, perfectionist, caregiver. Would it be fair to say that your parents were very concerned with what other people thought? Absolutely. At least, um, um, yes, our mother. Our mom. For mm-hmm. sure. Okay. Um, she was raised upper class, I'd say. And um, her, she has um, seven siblings, uh, three sisters and four brothers. And uh, they married well. And they have, I don't want to say ideal, um, because it's, who knows from the outside. Right. But, I mean, they, they're well off, and I think she wanted the same. And uh, So maybe there was some type of inherent competition in her mind. Oh, yeah. yeah That's why she absolutely. got married. I mean, she admitted that all the sisters Frankly, were yes. married, <laughs> and she you know, needed to keep up with that. Um, and we noticed our parents. When they got divorced, I asked tons of questions, so I won't make the same mistake. You know, Or, like, how well did you know each other? And it's incredible um, the miscommunications they had from, you know— they're moving back to Illinois from D.C., or my dad went to law school in D.C. They're moving to Illinois. My mom assumes, obviously, Chicago, and my dad's thinking they're moving back to his hometown in a farm. You know, So it's just huge miscommunications. Wow. <laughs> like, how did you not? Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> uh, it's almost amusing how, uh, how little they actually got along. I mean, even Opposite as, in absolutely every way. Yeah, even as children. I mean, you know, dad's a Republican. She's a Democrat. Yeah. Um, and that goes so much more deep than just those labels. But um, yeah, it's, it's amusing that on a basic level, like, they just didn't get along. I mean, as It's as hard kid, to understand. I, I think it was kind of appearance-based yeah. and kind of superficial in the sense that, you know, my dad's this up-and-coming lawyer. He's older. He had all these aspirations. And um, he's very, um, you know, born, raised on a farm. Uh, made his own way, went to you know law school, became fairly successful living in a big city, and you know was a partner at a firm for a while, and um, so he's got that work ethic mm-hmm. that that you know has paid off for mm-hmm. in a lot of ways, and uh, so he's very self sufficient. Mm-hmm. He, he believes in the value of hard work, but there's... and then I th- yeah, then I think our mom coming from you know like a pretty you know, decent upbringing, had a lot of expectations, like wanted this house that they couldn't afford. And she was like, we'll figure it out, you know, just purchasing, just wanting to kind of keep up with a lot of things. Um, I remember like the $5,000 couch, you know, just these things that... Um, Material goods that our mean Our dad that could it. not keep up with it and he would never say anything. So he just became kind of more resentful, more depressed. Um, yeah, more just disconnected from just trying to work harder, work harder. Do you – I know this is probably a difficult uh, question to answer because who knows where the the real truth lies. But do you feel like your me- mental illness is more a result of the environment or just kind of a thing that was genetically there that was exacerbated by environment? I, I personally um, – I've been you know learning as much as I can about my – I guess my illness and um, you know certain people are predisposed to mm-hmm. – certain conditions and so I, I believe it's not caused by environment but it certainly didn't help yeah going i mean 
I would definitely not blame them for my depression, hmm. but going through that and not having the support that I probably should have had was fairly difficult. Uh, and now I'm coming to terms with that and getting the support that I need by myself mm-hmm. uh, after so many years of, you know... Um, suffering? Or? Well, well, suffering, but also just neglect on my part, mm-hmm. too, mm-hmm. because I didn't know I didn't know how to reach out. I didn't know how to go about getting support mm-hmm. or even being in denial. Like, I'm, I'm fine now. Like, at, at this moment, I'm okay. Mm-hmm. So I'll be okay eventually. And it's if, not something I need to deal with and, on a regular and, basis. Yeah, and if there's a, an illness that is custom made for self-neglect, it is depression. Absolutely, because yes. it it tells you that you don't have depression. It tells you that you're just weak or lazy yeah. or unlovable, and and it saps your mm-hmm. energy yeah. to reach out and get help. And it makes interacting with other human beings feel like sandpaper. So the idea of going and contacting a stranger (laughs) to open up about these things where you don't even know where the truth lies, where it's just kind of an icky ball inside. And the thought of having to untangle those iPhone earbuds in front of another (laughs) person, and it's going to cost you money. Yeah. Is is so overwhelming for 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 most people. It keeps people. you depressed. I mean, just thinking about that makes you more depressed. Yeah. Um, for me, there's a phrase that I've heard. That, um, so it is, you know, eating disorders are like genetically predisposed. Um, they say, um, you know, genetics loads the gun and life pulls the trigger. Mm-hmm. So I think that's like completely accurate. You know. Um, Although I hate of, that metaphor I know. for depression because <laughs> it's, it's like the last Absolutely. thing yeah, people true. need to be reminded of. Yeah, but true. yes, but it yeah. apt, but yeah. uh, but okay. Yeah. Well, we could look for maybe. we yeah. could look for another metaphor. But, but you know what? If there's a podcast that can joke about that, yeah. it's it's this one. Yeah. So. yeah, yeah, yeah. It's I mean, and it's pretty. I don't know. I guess that I like the metaphor in the sense that it's like pretty obvious when you say mm. it that way. Yeah. Um, and yeah, I feel like that. You know, I think I have a lot of like there's a lot of temperament, there's anxiety, depression that contributes um, a lot of my you know perfectionism, just all these things kind of come together and make it what it is. Mm-hmm. And then you have your obviously media and all that stuff going on, you know, and um, it's we're, just a perf- we're big balls of mental illness, basically, <laughs> which uh, which. <laughs> I find more recently, again, interesting uh, trying to pick that apart. Mm-hmm. But there's two of you, so you make a nice scrotum. Yeah. Which is, <laughs> yeah. Absolutely. From where I'm looking at right now, it's perfectly proportioned and seems very... Thanks a lot. Very <laughs> nice. Yeah. Uh, so give me some snapshots from, from childhood to help, help me better kind of paint a picture of what, what it was like. What immediately comes to mind uh, when it comes to childhood is family dinners. Uh, every night we would sit, you know, there's seven of us, sit around the table and not talk. Uh, not even, how was your day? Really? No, we um, would, Mama would, we, we always would talk do, how was your day? a little bit, but never, there's always, you could cut the stress with a butter knife. Mm-hmm. There was always that between mom and dad. Yeah. Not. They each sat a different, you know, head and mm-hmm. the different ends of the table, and our dad would not talk at all. I feel yeah. like, and, and Mama would make this superficial conversation of how is, your, yeah, yeah, it's very. But the, the point that was that we sat down every night and had dinner together as a family, mm-hmm. and that's because that's what people are supposed to do, mm-hmm. even if it's uh, very tense, and even mm-hmm. if 
um, you know, mom and dad had been fighting uh, earlier that night. Mm-hmm. Um, we still we did it anyway. You know, there's there's no escape from the family bonds. <laughs> so it, it it seems fair to say that there was no talking about emotion and what people were no, feeling on the inside. And there was what, just not a lot of talking in general. Okay. Yeah. But um, was it the feeling that you guys? wanted to talk about that but didn't feel safe or that you were not even aware of what you were experiencing emotionally so why even it's, talk about it's it? It's more the latter. Um, mm-hmm. We didn't know what we were going through. We thought this was normal. Um, and again, it came off as normal. Um, I remember in high school trying to explain that family life wasn't as my friends pictured it. It wasn't that picture perfect um, setting. It, it was more, there was that tension there and there was the uh, um, the fact that they probably should have gotten divorced earlier. Yeah. Um, you, you know, those disagreements always came up. As you're describing your your situation, it it is my experience completely. It's exactly what I experienced. And I think the thing that can kind of really fuck you up about that is you begin blaming yourself because you don't know. Kids don't know that their needs aren't being met. You don't yeah. often know that until you're in your 20s or 30s or even 40s. Well, only maybe a few months ago did I actually realize that. <laughs> yeah. Uh, because I actually did seek treatment. Um, and this is this past August, had a very low point, finally reached out uh, to my sister, actually. Mm-hmm. Uh, she was the first one I called and said, I need to get help, uh, what did finally. That, what did that feel like? Um... Be- being able to call her or calling her, were you were you anxious about it? Did it? Uh, I'll tell you exactly what happened. Is that uh, as I only mentioned a couple hours ago, I was watching The Sopranos late at night, and Tony was uh, in therapy, mm-hmm. and he pictured his um, his family with him gone. He pictured what they would go through if he did not exist anymore, and I had never put that together for myself, what my friends or family would go through. And it just hit me. And I went to work the next day and uh, got home and immediately called Megan. And Was uh, that the night we were talking until like 3 in the morning? Probably. I just broke down. Uh, I said, I can't do this anymore. I do need help, and I don't know how to get it. Um, yeah. It was a very painful week. <laughs> but it was, it was also relieving uh, that I was actually finally, after almost 20 years, finally doing something about it. It is the most important phrase some for me it was the most important phrase i ever said in my life was i need help i can't do this on my own yeah. please help me and part of it for me was that i thought i could keep going mm-hmm. keep doing yes. it on my own yep Could, because um, you viewed it because i guess I was as, used a, to. as a weakness yeah. and if you can just buck up yeah mm-hmm. and think your way out of it yeah. yeah or again like i'd be okay for a while so i would think everything's fine mm-hmm. and then i'd be super depressed and yeah, just future, get it together. The future yeah. wouldn't matter at that point because I was so depressed. It's it's you know depression is like it comes in and gives you these Coke bottle glasses and then you're supposed to find your way out. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We're going to pause our uh, conversation for a second and give a little bit of love to our sponsor. Uh, our sponsor for this episode is Hover. Uh, the website is. Hover.com, H-O-V-E-R.com. Are you looking to register a new domain name? Would you care to do it hassle-free and for a small fee? Well, then you're in luck. The domain registration and email management site Hover believes that everyone should have full control of their online identity. 
Hover takes all the hassle and friction out of owning and managing domain names with their clean, powerful, easy-to-use tools. With Hover, you'll avoid the heavy-handed upselling and aggressive cross-selling that other companies subject you to. Features like who is privacy, URL forwarding, and subdomains are included in your domain registration, so you don't have to worry about extra charges. And Hover only offers services that enhance the domain name experience. So along with your choice of domain, you can create a simple, memorable email address. No more impersonal webmail addresses that are impossible to recall. So hook up with Hover for a low-cost, completely stress-free registration process. It takes only seconds to secure your corner of the internet and start using your account. Once you're good to go, Hover offers, and this is the part I really like, no hold, no wait, and no transfer phone and online support and tutorials. Talk to actual people who have actual answers. Look at that. So head on over to Hover.com slash mental to start enjoying the benefits of Hover today. You get 10% off your entire purchase with the URL. That's 10% off at www.hover.com slash mental. And uh, thank you, Hover, for uh, supporting our show. I really appreciate it. And now back to our interview. And the, I feel like, well, with all disorders, you know, p- people just on the street say, just kind of throw out anxiety, depression. Oh, you're bipolar. You know, just kind of these terms that really minimize what the feelings are. Mm-hmm. And I guess the more I understand what's what my background is and, and how I've come to terms with things, the more those phrases kind of bother me, you know, mm-hmm. that it's you're acting. Um, I was this past summer, I was diagnosed with bipolar two, and I didn't even know what that we, was. We call that one electric boogaloo. Uh, great. <laughs> <laughs> I prefer the secret of the ooze. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Yeah. it's And that was a huge relief because I've been diagnosed depression for years. I don't even know how many therapists I've had, medications I've been put on. And any kind of depression medication, it's, I guess I feel a little better. I don't even know, you know, and it's, I'm afraid to go off of it because then I have crazy side effects, Um, but it just never really seems to help. And I'm not saying that everything is, you know, absolutely, you know, perfect at this point, but it it definitely felt a lot more right. And I I think I always had those feelings and I didn't really know what, when I thought of, bipolar, I was just much more familiar with, you know, the mania and that kind of stuff. And I was like, well, that doesn't really qualify me. But I definitely have these like huge mood swings. And, you know, you call me, they weren't as outwardly. It's not like you call me one day and it's like, oh, things are amazing. The next day, like things are terrible. But just internally, I was Mm -hmm. totally up and down. Yeah, it's funny to, I would imagine for somebody that's experiencing those mood swings is you just try to present yourself as being in the center. Mm -hmm. So it's either... You know, oh, uh, yeah. It's all black and white. I mean, well, mm. that's from an eating disorder perspective, of course. You know, it's like I'm going to be everything's great or everything's, you know, I have feelings of sometimes just wanting to hide in my closet for the rest of my life. You yeah. know, it sounds a lot simpler than going out in the world and getting doing stuff. And, and having that pressure of trying to present yourself as normal um, doesn't help either. No. As, as a, you know, everything is everything is fine to everyone else. Uh, but in your head, you're. You're creating that stress of uh, everything's not fine, everything is not okay at all. But here I am, yeah. And, and I have to, I have to present that to everyone. Is that I'm a normal person too? Mm-hmm. When, when in fact the exact opposite is what you yeah. need to be doing, which mm-hmm. is being honest with people that are safe mm-hmm. and yeah. appropriate. Yeah. 
But it's hard before you get into the therapy. You don't know who's safe and appropriate. Yep. And so you may you reach out to, your to parents somebody. For, I mean, right. the opposite of what's helpful. You go to the, the people that <laughs> you know, had a huge effect on you. And then they're like, or what that, are you talking about? They don't you know, know how to deal with it themselves. Yeah. They, yeah, and, um, it, and it's not that they don't love you. Of course not. Yeah. And I think what you trigger, we've noticed this with our dad recently and our mom, you trigger what they're not looking at in themselves. So they really close down. They just don't want to admit it. And when it's like, okay, you have these two children at least. Some of our brothers are kind of young, so we don't know um, how they're impacted. Um, None of us have been – this is more recent that we're actually open about it. But until then, until maybe a year or two Well, I've ago, been pretty open about it, I think. I don't know if you agree. Since, yeah, since um, – well, well, ever we, we since we were actually very close yeah. until more yeah. recently. Yeah, so. I would say for me, eating disorder started in, in when I was eighteen. I wasn't really aware that that's what it was. I started when I was twenty-one, like starting to understand that this is was a it bulimia or anorexia. So technically, it's um, non-purging bulimia. Mm-hmm. Um, so I would not eat during the day, and then I would binge at night because I was, you know, obviously physiologically <laughs> needing food in my body, and then I would eat more than I was comfortable with, and then the next day I'd punish myself or have a plan to fix it, so I would starve myself all day, and then at different points I would overexercise, and it was just the cycle that was really difficult to get out of, and socially it affected, you know, dates, I would make sure we went out for a drink instead of dinner, you know, and um, never eating around people, just so many, looking back, it's that was the most important thing. You know, it's – I needed to – to. I wouldn't feel comfortable eating unless I had gone to yoga that day or, or gone for a run. Um, so food Just absolutely just, controlled me, yeah. And was just littered with shame. Oh, completely. And then it would border on – depending on my weight, it would border on anorexia. Um, but I've never been, you know, extremely visibly um, anorexic. So I think – that contributed a lot to having, especially with our parents. I mean, I think since I was like 23, maybe I started being like, listen, there's a problem, you know? And it's like, what are you talking about? You know? Yeah. Every, everything's um, fine. Everything's normal. Yeah. Like we, we were raised with a roof over our heads. And yeah. Food. Yeah. Uh, and then, yeah. There, there's no reason to complain because everything looks like it should be okay. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That boy, that is such an apt description. Everything looks like it should be okay. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And and that really, um, for the past, I mean, for me, for the past ten or so years, um, really describes what I was going through. I was mm-hmm. trying to make things okay. I was in the air force for three years, and you can't be depressed. You lose your job if you get if you're if you admit to mental illness at all. Um, my recruiter told me to lie uh, to get into the air force, and I accepted it. I was I was okay with that, um, so I did, and I. Did three years and um... well, interestingly, our dad always goes to that point that John was doing really well with that structure in yeah, the Air Force, and, and it did help. But at the, there were times where I wanted to say something to someone, but I couldn't. I mean, mm-hmm. that's my job was more important than than actually admitting that stuff. And that certainly has to contribute to the fact that there are more deaths of enlisted people yeah. by suicide you, than of being killed I assume in it's the same in the Army, the Marines, that you can't self-report. No. Uh, not just being looked down by um, people in your unit, but... It, it affects that, your career. Yeah, it yeah. Do, absolutely does affect your career. You won't have one after that. Um, so I, I got out of the Air Force and thought, I did this for three years. I could tamp it down for that long. 
but uh, there was more pressure on me because um, in civilian life it wasn't I still wasn't able to express myself or to reach out and get help even though I did have health insurance mm -hmm. I did have the necessary tools but I couldn't make that step well it's interesting because I don't know if you see this at all with the Air Force but our dad was just in the hospital two weeks ago and he um, has been smoking what for 40 something years probably 45 yeah. years um, and he was talking about he didn't smoke for a few days, but it was a controlled environment, and, and he said he's quitting smoking, and he's, he's still smoking. Um, but then when I was in treatment, you know, eating disorder treatment, um, it's I wonder if the Air Force is, was like that for you at all, that in a sense it was a very controlled environment, so you got kind of accustomed to – I mean, it was different because that wasn't obviously based on recovery, but it was – Absolutely. I mean, it was controlled. Um, in a very different environment from day to day. Well, for me, it was very – I mean, day to day was was very um, very stable. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, had a good job, went to work, mm -hmm. and enjoyed what I did. Um, so things were fairly stable for those three years. Um, but there were still those those feelings there, those suicidal feelings, um, depression here and there. But I was able to control it. And then afterwards, getting out, uh, I still felt I should be able to control it. And did that for another six years. Just describe, and I'm, I'm going to want you to answer the same question about your your eating disorder, Megan. But John, describe when you were a kid and you would beat your head against the wall. What what were you experiencing, thinking, feeling? What did your body feel like? What did your? I think. You know, I've never actually been asked that question before. Um, I think anger, because it was always in. Probably more frustration. I didn't know how to let anything out, so that was my that was my response. Just go to the doorway and bang my head on it. Um, maybe confusion. I, I didn't know how to. I didn't know what I was doing. I didn't know how to react to any sort of frustrating or difficult situation. So that was how I would act out. And did you feel like? crying in your family would not be welcome? Not necessarily. Um, but talking about... talking about needing help or getting help was definitely not overtly frowned upon, but just not even really... Well, I don't want to say it's not an option because my parents did send... I probably had 20 different therapists or psychiatrists... Um, in high school uh, and was in inpatient for a few times but and in, i mean it, it was like that's we we basically took care of the problem because we got you to a doctor um that's you know sh everything ship shape because we sought treatment for you and we spent the money it must be fixed we spent <laughs> the money we we drove you to the doctor we you know made a, an appointment to put you in the hospital for a week. So after well, that, everything must be normal because you've had that treatment. It, it almost reminds me of the wealthy family that has a kid who's an addict and they search for the most expensive rehab to send him to, to which, you know, I usually just want to say, you're almost ensuring this, this kid is going to fail. That's, that's mm -hmm. pretty much what it was. Went to a good hospital for the uh, inpatient treatment. 
but actually got nothing done. I mean, I didn't. It's kind of more traumatizing. It was more traumatizing Mm -hmm. because I was in there um, and I, this probably sounds terrible, but I didn't feel crazy in there. I was with other teenagers that, that was like their last resort. But for me, this was like option number two after seeing a doctor was, well, deal with this in the hospital. Yeah, that seems like not, Not bring this home and, you know, be helped through it, but... Go to the hospital. Or bring the family in for a group session. To Hell no. And we did it talk. once. We yeah. did that once and, and it was terrible. Actually, I felt twice like... we, had, we each had our own instances of that. Well, that was like, yeah, 10 years difference. But when we did it for John and... But that's also to, yeah. to say that nothing changed over yeah. those 10 years. Well, I'd, my recollection from the when we did it when you were in probably late grade school um, is it was all blamed on me. Like, that's how I, what I left feeling like. Really? Yeah. I the North that. Face jacket they bought for me, the dresser. I remember you saying, like, she gets everything she wants. Huh. And I left feeling like, fuck, I totally screwed up. Yeah. Look um, what I did. I, I remember um, probably the only family group session that we had um, with with one of my therapists. My After, you know, everyone goes around and says, why do you think we're here? My mother said... I don't know why I have to be here. Oh, my I don't God, understand. That my heart. I don't understand why I'm here. I have oh. nothing to do with this. Yeah, and then this, the same thing Didn't happened. Didn't she have her arms crossed? Wasn't she in the corner? I no? don't remember that yeah. much, but uh, that's what I took away from it. Oh. Like, there's, I have nothing to do with my son's illness, and oh, there's yeah. no way I can help. There's no way yeah. I can relate. How did, that, how did that make you feel? Awful. I mean, even then, just purely awful. And then the same thing happened. My sister was in uh, yeah. extensive outpatient in Denver. Was in treatment, yeah. Um, and so they came in. There's family weekend, you know. And so my mom, I think I, I'm sure I pushed her to come. And I guess I, I should have known that our mom completely checked out, like emotionally, yeah. all weekend. It was. Um, there's probably ten different families there, in support of their inpatient, um, you know, loved ones. And at one point, we were all sitting in a circle and. Each patient would talk to one of their family members about there was like three different things you had to bring up, mm-hmm. and everyone did it. You know, Megan and myself. It was a did regret, it. Um, something, and then a hope. You know, it was like very, and very, very <sighs> open, very, very emotional, mm-hmm. and the purpose of it, which is to show people to, how important vulnerability is yes, around loved to, ones. It was like the pinnacle of the weekend. You know, yeah, it was yeah. extremely it was one important. Of the last yeah, things, but. Um, my mom would not do it. She was the only one in the room, absolutely yeah. refused. And even coming up to that, so they had been there for a few days and at different points. So when you get there, you get this whole binder of things. And I forgot what they called the thing, but I remember being the night before, um, kind of bringing it up. And of course, my mom was in the bathroom when they initially talked about it. And then I mentioned it to her the night before and she's like, oh, I don't know what that is or something. And then left and was on her Blackberry or something. You know, like she just was not... Anytime there was anything that was important, she just happened not to be there. Or just, um, again, she said pretty much the same thing. Why, what do I have to do with this situation? Why am I here? Mm-hmm. Uh, it's like, well, even if the events aren't related to you and to your actions or anything, it's your son yeah. you could still support. Yeah. And you why could. are you digging up from the past? Like, what is that? Yeah. What, is, what like, does anything have to do with anything at yeah. this point? <laughs> I would imagine... Your mom has some stuff from her past that's so painful and so yeah. scary to open the yeah. door to that to even begin to go there is probably so terrifying. And there's that facade again. Yeah. You must appear normal and you can't yeah. crack that. 
that wall. Yeah, if well, you do, who knows what could come spilling out. Yeah. I often describe it as so our parents, I don't know how old she is, 50-something, and our dad just turned 65, so they're seven years different. Yeah, but she seems really young, and I always describe, you know, she does Bikram yoga very frequently. She rides a scooter. She's in real estate, kind of all these things. She It's almost as if they're two different generations. And, you know, she throws these – she's on the board of this um, nonprofit, and she throws these part. I mean, she's very um, – Kind of I've, yeah, I've always compared myself to her, and I've always seen her as um, we're half an inch. I'm a half an inch shorter, and her is like tall and thin and graceful, and me like short and fat. Like it's, um, I guess, kind of distorted. Uh, but I mean, yeah, you're right. I'm sure there's tons of stuff, and it'll be interesting whether I feel like recently she's starting to come into it a little more. Um, her fiance died a little more than a year ago, and so that's. She's obviously dealing with a lot of depression based on that. Um, so she has been – it's been a little bit easier or to relate to her because she's actually openly suffering. And people can always come around. That's mm-hmm. the thing that's so amazing is when they decide to mm-hmm. finally stop trying to manage it and keep the, the demons down on their own. It's they realize that your pain can bring you closer mm-hmm. to other people. Mm-hmm. Um, and And if I – Go ahead. I was just going to say that I make the distinction only personally. It's not uh, my therapist hasn't Hmm. mentioned this to me, but I make the distinction between coping and dealing. Um, You can cope with something for a very, very long time, but to actually deal with it is much more difficult and scary. Mm -hmm. That's a great distinction. I I like that. Well, I think the coping mechanisms, if you look back at it, you know, and it's you did the best you can at the time with what you had. And I think um, I don't know. I was just trying to think of what coping, I guess, sleep, mm-hmm. um, going out drinking, like, I guess those are kind of mm-hmm. different coping mechanisms and distractions. Yep. And for me, um, addictions. Oh, totally. It was, yeah, that's how I dealt with it. Like I, God, if I actually lived with it, I'm sh- like, I had to numb out at some point or I'm sure I, you know, that was the way I had to, the only way I could function was. So talk us through the first time that you began to abuse food to numb or f- or to feel? What were you thinking, feeling? What would you get from it? What would you feel in your body, in your mind, in your, your soul before and after abusing food? Yeah, it was... So initially, I was in college. I, I was a sophomore, and I started restricting. And... Because you I guess thought you first, weighed too much? Or well, what? I guess what I my first memory was I was working for my dad. It was between freshman and sophomore year in college. I had a friend in high school that was severely anorexic. And at that time, I was on the other side. I was reading books. I was trying to help her. I didn't understand. Um, and so then she, she and I both worked downtown. So every day we'd get together for lunch. And I would eat and she wouldn't. And I guess a part of me started thinking, like, that's not fair. Like, I don't want to do that. So instead, we started going shopping. And so initially it was kind of more of like a surfacey level. Like that was kind of cool that I fit into this thing that was, you know, smaller. And so I went back to college and started continuing that. Um, and just the smaller, um, you know, the, the less I weighed, it was just kind of like a confidence. It was just, I don't know, it just felt good. Um, Would it be fair to say that it felt like power? Yeah. and Maybe control? 
Oh, totally control. Yeah. And I mean, that's what I was going to say earlier was when John went to 20 therapists and had all this stuff. I was in college. I'm just learning about this recently. I had no idea when I knew that, you know, you were going through depression. I didn't know about banging your head. All I knew is like when you lied down in the tracks in New York. Yeah. The that, railroad that was, tracks. Yeah, that was actually unrelated. But oh, uh, okay. <laughs> I was um, basically. Um, what if I said, I'm not really interested. <laughs> Well, I'm going to leave. <laughs> um, what happened? Um, me and my cousin, um, ver- I was very close to my cousins at the time, and we would just, at night, we would sneak out and ride our bikes to the uh, railroad tracks and just talk and watch the trains pass, and that's all it was. Uh, one night, though, he uh, he didn't feel like going or he wouldn't, you know, sneak out, he wouldn't wake up. Uh, so I just decided to go by myself. And uh, the one night that uh, an engineer, I guess, saw saw me by the tracks and called it in. So, of course, a police cruiser pulls up a few minutes later and it's like, hey, what are you doing here? Like, oh, I'm just watching the trains. No big deal. Okay, well, you know, head home, buddy. And they were going through my wallet and saw that I had my uh, psychiatrist's card in there. Mm. And then, you know, liability, they have to do something about it. I see. So I was taken to a hospital and... Wow. Yeah, I didn't know any of this ever. And then, Um, you know, I was picked up the next morning by my mom. You had to stay the night there? Yeah. Well, she came and got me basically right away, but it was a couple hours away. Mm Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And um, she was very angry, obviously, which is, you know, right. So <laughs> I shouldn't have been on the railroad tracks. Have you ever seen the movie Ordinary People? Yeah. 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 Do you feel like did, um, that, did you relate to that movie at all? A little bit. Um, I guess I'm very inwardly focused. So yeah. <laughs> I I take certain things from certain places and relate to them how I can. What's actually, I, I wanted to mention what's great about this podcast is that even if it's an issue that I'm not dealing with, I can relate at some point. And, well, good. Yeah. Good. Uh, Megan, get, getting back to to what you were talking about, I've I, we have a survey on the website called Struggle in a Sentence. And um, one of the ones that I'm particularly fascinated about because I've never experienced it is um, the the diseases around food mm-hmm. and some of the ones that have struck me that that people have described about the controlling of their food or their abusing of food um the controlling in particular mm-hmm. uh, um somebody said it f- when i restrict my food when i starve myself it feels clean mm-hmm. it feels like a victory mm-hmm. oh totally um i feel like between the two anorexia is much more clean um less shameful i mean it's it's because it doesn't involve throwing up right and i actually never threw up but just um but um binging is like Mm -hmm. disgusting shameful like the fact that our body needs food is kind of terrible um the restriction is much yeah that's ultimate control you're like a failure if you're if you're eating especially overeating um it's like a a fucked up way to feel good about yourself (laughs) yeah 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 well one thing that's i was just thinking one thing that's different than, you know, other addictions and recovery is that, you know, with drugs or alcohol, it's it's black and white in the sense that you can't do this anymore. And it's, um, you know, the recovery is very difficult and there's definitely some similarities at the same time with food. You have to have a relation to it. You have to, you know, somehow figure out how to how to deal with it. And a lot of people become um, it's well, you love rules. You know, this is this is good. This is bad. Um, you know, certain things I would always binge on, of course, things that I would never let myself have, like 
sweets or carbohydrates. And that's what, you know, that's the, if you're really hungry, that's the quickest thing to kind of get in your blood flow. And um, yeah, I mean, fruits and vegetables, obviously, like very, you know, that's safe. Um, it, it strikes me that 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 kind of binary thinking, mm-hmm. um, I, I it makes me wonder if the person that finds comfort in that black and white thinking finds agony in shades of gray or nuance or things where the truth isn't quite clear. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Is is that? Yeah, I want you... the right answer. I want, um, I want an answer. Yeah, it's. I mean, that's a huge part of recovery. Just. I guess, acknowledging that there's black and white and, you know, I kind of joke around, oh, this seems like the gray thing to do. You know, it it is definitely um, something that doesn't come or if I if I choose the thing that's gray, it's I'm, um, I guess, aware of how far I've come. Um, So that's. Yeah, there's a lot of like, I don't know if it's pleasure. Um, It just comes very naturally to see it as complete extremes. Uh, Any other snapshots from from your guys past that I'm sure um well for me I was thinking because you have a lot of kind of childhood things I think Mm -hmm. I was very you know in high school I still have nightmares probably at least once a week about high school and that wasn't they're not family nightmares but just you know huge fears of, of getting called on in school and um I went to a inner city public school but I was in like a very advanced program. So it was this like strange dichotomy and I always hated it. I mean, I absolutely hated high school, but looking back and how like not nurturing the the situation was. Um, but I don't, I can't think, you know, as I guess because my disorder started later, my memories of my twenties are a lot more prominent than like childhood memories and how it affected me. Um, I was telling John, I mean, it, it, still happens pretty constantly like um just our especially my mom being completely unaware of what's triggering and what's not and i'm in a place now where it i'm okay with it i definitely notice when some someone says something that doesn't feel um good and i kind of wish that they understood or i don't know i see it as like cared more at um how i um deal with things or where i am um, but our mom especially is – I mean, even when she came to that weekend, the mm-hmm. treatment weekend, she would tell me how she hadn't eaten all day or she wouldn't feel – like we'd have – one night we ate dinner at the treatment center and you have to finish everything in a certain amount of time. And I don't even think she was like – I was like said explicitly like, you know, these are the rules. Like I have to do it so you have to do it. And, you know, when she says, oh, I haven't eaten all day and like I've eaten f- six fucking meals, you know, I have to. And that just – just her – like not being aware seem, of things. Yeah, she didn't seem very cognizant of. And I almost what felt like it was purposeful or something. And she, growing up and especially in my twenties, I always noticed how she wouldn't eat all day, and then at night, you know, she'd put butter on her bread and have a glass of wine. Like she would eat a normal meal, and so I would always feel really guilty that like I ate all day. Like I don't deserve to eat this. Um, and so I think. As much as she wasn't outwardly saying, like, this is, you know, you need to starve yourself or something, it was just her behavior had a huge effect on me. Yeah. Um, I think a lot of parents forget that. They think that all kids feed on is what the parents tell them. Mm-hmm. But really what kids feed on are it's what they do, what you do and how you carry yourself. And when a parent carries themselves 
with this kind of belief that the world is incredibly judgmental and unforgiving and harsh and you can't let them know anything that's going on inside you, how can your kids not be filled with anxiety? Yeah. Because yeah. you think your parents know. Yeah. And, and, and maybe for your mom, that was her experience you know, well, as, a, as a child. Yeah, what I say about my... I'm not very close with my mom's family, and I think a huge part of that is because... I tell people that it's, you know, to be accepted in the family, you have to be thin, you know, you have to have your master's degree and you have to be very attractive. And our family, our like um, close family is like the black sheep. You know, our parents got divorced. We don't have we've dealt with a lot of financial issues compared to everyone else. I mean, we're all, we're like completely unacceptable as far as I see it. Oh, I know what I wanted to ask you next. Well, were there any other snapshots that you wanted yeah, to share? Yeah, I would. Um, I guess you I would go back. Just move a little yeah, bit sorry. closer. That's okay. I guess I would go back to uh, to my father, um, and yeah, exactly the way he carried himself, uh, not being present. He'd get home from work and go take a nap, uh, and then when dinner was ready, he would get up and be there for dinner, but then disappear again. And yeah, he was obviously looking back. He was obviously very depressed. But he didn't take any action towards it. He didn't – and I guess as a kid, I learned to not take any action. Well, because... also, it was in my – our mom's family and I think our mom, if you take a nap, you're lazy. There's all these things that still kind of exist. Mm -hmm. And I – That was said or implied? Um, implied. Um, you know, you're – I mean, even recently every year when um, – my, we go to visit my grandma there in Florida for Christmas a lot. And um, I've the past few years, I feel like I'm always working on boundaries when I'm down there. And I used to. The eating disorder completely helped because going to the gym was acceptable or taking these long mm -hmm. walks were acceptable. Um, but things like I need time by myself and I need, you know, a nap really helps my anxiety just lying down there for a while is I've kind of helped her understand. And it's been more acceptable, especially this year. Um, but there's just... Yeah, there's just complete opposites where daddy's depressed and he always sleeps and our mom is – yeah, that's just not allowed in this house. You know, it's do something, vacuum or do something. You know, you need to <laughs> – one of, one of the best tools that I've developed in coping with my depression, especially when I start to beat myself up and, and you know, things become difficult to accomplish and you feel like – you know, your to-do list is just the Dead Sea Scrolls and you can't fucking get anything done. Taking a nap and not beating yourself up for it, but saying, I deserve this. I deserve. I'm tired. You know, I, I have an illness that is no different than somebody having the flu. And if I had the flu, I wouldn't tell myself, push through the fever yeah. and do that. And that compassion for oneself by doing that can oftentimes be the door that kind of opens into you realizing that you've been too hard on yourself. Yeah. And when in reality, what you really need to do is have more patience and more love for yourself because you are battling something that is huge and multi-headed. Um, a, a couple things. One, one thing that absolutely helped me was finally admitting or realizing that it's a medical condition. And that allowed me to be more easy on myself, to to work towards something one small step at a time instead of thinking depression is a mountain that I have to overcome tomorrow. Right. Yeah. Um, 
and yeah, exactly. Allowing yourself to go easy on yourself and to take a break. Not call and, yourself a lazy bum. Yes, and not worry about um, being successful tomorrow. Yeah, and not listening if you have somebody close to you that doesn't understand depression that calls you a lazy bum to tell yourself they don't know, they don't understand. Yeah. They, you know, yeah. thank God my wife has always has never shamed me for for taking yeah. um, naps when I when that's, I need them. That's helpful. <laughs> it yeah. is and. Yeah. Uh, Coming from the other side of that, again, yeah. as, as children, like, the opposite being, why don't you just get more exercise or get regular sleep or... Well, also, we are, especially Mama, still stays up to, like, three in the morning. Like, mm-hmm. she's always going. And even going to bed at midnight's kind of unacceptable. I mean, it's like, yeah, I was going to say even, like, right now I have two roommates and... Um, you know, overall the situation is great and I love when I see them taking naps because I'm like, okay, well, it's more acceptable if I do. But there's definitely been times when I will come home really tired and take a nap from like 8 p.m. to 10 p.m. or something, but not as acceptable time. And when I get up, it's been more than one time that my um, guy roommate says, good morning. And that just, you know, pisses me off because I feel like that's just him saying it's really not acceptable. Um I'm not sure if that's true or not. Um, but, yeah, that's completely what I make up, that there are certain times in general, yeah, I mean, it's like naps are for kids, you know. And right. I love that there's more studies recently that it's it's good for you. I mean, I think that helps me at least um, be able to be easier on myself. And, and I think one of the most important tools in dealing with uh, depression, addiction, or, or whatever is knowing when to listen to your body and when to go – well, maybe, maybe this is something that I can address and help kind of, you know, ease or soothe or, oh, this is my anxiety and I just need to take a deep breath and this is just my mind fucking with me. Um, that's that's the, the thing that in the long run I think just takes time and experience and being around other people and therapy and support groups yep. and yada, 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 yada. Yeah. I don't know where this came from, but I use the term monkey mind a lot, and I love that. Like, if you're already kind of, you know, you take a nap or something, and then someone doesn't call you back, like, the monkey mind just totally loves it and just goes on and on. And it's, I think it's really helped me see that, um, kind of separate myself from it. Talk about what it feels like to have each other. Um, it's, it's very comforting, um. It's odd that we didn't actually connect until more recently, that there was a, those barriers there Yeah, I think for bef- the longest time. Yeah. I think before that, honestly, it was kind of challenging my relationship with you mm-hmm. because from the outside, I felt like I was worried about you. And I have a lot of experience with um, alcoholism. I've had two very serious boyfriends that are now sober. And when I was with both of them, they were, you know, very into their addiction. And so I was concerned about John and how, um, you know, his drinking and and feeling like he was self-medicating. And it felt like, I guess, I feel like I had to, like, hold back my feelings because I felt like we were on different planes, kind of. And and, um, I so wanted to force him or help him. But it's like I try that. You, um, for the longest time. You were my second mother. Oh, yeah. Uh, you would say, you would give me the, the thought of what I should be doing 
Mm-hmm. Um, and little with, kind with of very little authority because I didn't respect that. Yeah, and if you you know ever had, um, if you mentioned you were interested in working on aircrafts or something, I would research it and send you information on it. Like any yeah. tidbit of me, like if of potentially like helping, like how I see how I saw like what would help my brother like i would you know go running with it and send him i don't know send him article i guess i yeah. didn't do that much but just no, any no, I, I, opportunity absolutely. <laughs> yeah. yeah yeah it's and it's funny cuz sometimes what the person needs and they don't even know it they just need some arms to collapse into mm-hmm. and to, for somebody to just say i love you mm-hmm. i love you mm-hmm. i'm so sorry you're feeling this way i love you and that and that's it and it's that the understanding that You'll still be there after, and you're, um, and you're not going to have to go through it alone. Um, and you, yeah, I think I had to work on a lot of acceptance. Um, I guess I, a few years ago, I was thinking there's definitely been different times when I've talked to you about therapy, right? Mm-hmm. Oh, I mean, for the past really ten years or so, um, you need to get help. Like, yeah, I know, but I'll be okay. Um, I mean, coming from Megan or uh, friends or whoever, uh, and I realized that I did need to get help, but there was something there I just couldn't do it. I couldn't reach out. Yep. I couldn't. And you have to be internally be ready. And, yeah, and you, yeah. you do have to be ready. You have to want it. Um, you can't just be told that you need help. You have to make that effort yourself and be willing to put in the work. So how does a loved one who can see from the outside, oh, this person is suffering from depression. How can they, what can they do for that person? Should they just say, I'm here for, I'm here for you. I love you. Um, should they say, I, I, I think you should see somebody because this is, this is, too big of a thing for one person to handle on their own. I mean, how do you how do you phrase that? Because it can be a tough thing because sometimes the wrong person telling somebody you need to go do this can take that thing yes. off the table forever mm-hmm. yes. for that person. Yes. Great. Yeah. Um, so how do you how would you suggest somebody? Well, what Megan actually did for me when I called her. Um, was immediately like the next day look for doctors for me and make an appointment for me and all you have to do is show up and I did and then that's my treatment from there on mm-hmm. out is I showed up to that first appointment immediately made another after that and I was on my way but to actually you asked her address, to make the appointment or she made it on her own and said I've made an appointment for you she if, said she would and I accepted that oh okay yeah. and I don't know if this is the way you felt but I felt with the situation with the summer that my, um, so I've helped, I kind of hate doing, but I have a lot of experience with health insurance and finding different, you know, from my experience with it. And I know, like, I can't, it's been hard enough for me to figure it out. And I've put a lot of effort over the years into it. And so I guess at least what I I thought I was doing was trying to provide resources. Like here's, okay, health insurance is a bitch. Like, let me, I'll handle it. Give me your, your, you know, number and I'll deal with that part. Like just trying to make it as easy as possible for John to look into getting some help if he was interested. And and that was a big step was, uh, I didn't want to have to research all that stuff. I didn't want to have to call a doctor 
It's overwhelming. It is overwhelming. Yes, it's overwhelming when you're not depressed. Yeah. Um, So that was very loving you. That's really beautiful. Yeah, and I will thank her for forever for doing that for me. Yeah. Um, How does that make you feel to hear him say that? It feels great. I mean, it's John's done such a huge transition. I mean, like since. you know, since August when all this happened, it's just, I feel like we're, I mean, this sounds mean, but I feel like we're on the same page now and mm-hmm. we can talk about things and we can support each other. Well, we're, we're here right now, which yeah. is well, his, kind of mind-blowing. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I mean, his insight, uh, just recently I was, I was having trouble with a friend of mine and, and just his insight about, you know, taking... Is he taking his medication at the same time every day? And I was like, oh, shit, good point, John. You know, just these these very, not even basic things, but just John's, how new he is to this and how, like, how much he knows about it and how, um, I guess, how much he's, like, diving into it and, and, like, figuring it out. Like, I think it's nice to have, like, someone to kind of go through it and, like, yeah. A, a, a friend of mine um, who's very analytical asked me, and it totally threw me off, but what is the purpose of your depression? And looking at it that way, it was very interesting because I could research it without my own complications, without my own emotional input. So I've been doing a lot of that, just uh, you know, watching YouTube videos of doctors giving lectures, uh, watching or just reading about people's different cases and what they've done for themselves. Uh, and then relating to that that way, and that's helped me a lot. It's it kept it's keep, excuse me, it has kept my focus a lot um, towards working on myself. Does it help you not take your depression personally? Like, like your... I said, the the medical aspect is huge for me um, because it's not personal. It's something that people go through. Yeah, and I think it's probably been said on here before, but relating it to diabetes, you, you know, you're not going to tell that kid to. Um, you know, just, you know, produce buck, more. Yeah. Buck up and buck make up. more insulin. Exactly. You can't, um, you have to have expectations for yourself that are very reasonable. Um, I think for me, I know a lot of, you know, people in recovery and I've been to a bunch of support groups over the years and just there's this instant bond and there's this instant respect um, and seeing someone's beauty, just if you've if you have any kind of, you know, if we can relate to each other, it's like there's trust. It's like I get it. And it's it's amazing in some in all of the support groups I've been to. You know, there's um, people of just, you know, all shapes and sizes. And just as they're talking and sharing their story and, feel, and being so mean to themselves sometimes, I'm just seeing like you're incredible. Like how are you – it's just so hard to not um, – how are these people not seeing this? You know, they're just – It's that mindset like uh... – that I learned from you, just having that outside eye to other people don't perceive you the same way that you perceive yourself. Yeah, totally. And, and, the, and the bonds that are formed when you when you put the effort into a support group and you go there regularly and you're maybe even of service at that support group. So you feel truly mm-hmm. a part of it and you get to know other people's stories and they get to know yours. There's a bond there that is so much deeper and and it's different than the bond between you and a therapist, though that can be a fantastic bond. And it's certainly, ha- I-, I think, 
is necessary for certain parts of us to heal as well. But to me, it's the difference between, you know, the therapist to me would be like the bond that I would have with maybe, you know, the sergeant at the boot camp that I mm-hmm. went through and the bond that I have with people in a support group would be the bond that I went through somebody mm-hmm. in combat mm-hmm. That's with. Right. It's oh, just... Totally. Yeah. We've been in, through the foxholes together. We, yeah. uh, we fought the same demons. Yeah. And that's kind of the first casualty of mental illness and addiction is perception. Mm-hmm. That's the first thing, which is like – it's like in, in a war, the first thing you do is you knock out the communication center. Mm-hmm. And that's what our, those diseases do to us is they 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 hurt that communication center. Yeah. They, they put that wall up for sure. Yeah. Yep. They, Yeah, I I always say, like, I led two completely different lives, you know, and I think from um, past relationships, um, dating someone that had extreme, you know, drug and alcohol abuse, I looked so together. You know, first of all, I was trying to fix him. This was the perfect, you know, relationship for me. And our um, our behaviors worked really. I mean, they just kept us sick. And I like Friday night, he would DJ. He would stay out until four doing coke. I would binge when he was out, you know, and then in the morning I would go to the gym because I was so mad at myself from the night before. And it just it worked in this extremely dysfunctional way. Um, and I was so busy trying. I thought I was doing well at that point, And I was so busy trying to control his illness. Um, and later just him telling me that, you know, I would watch I would check the alcohol in the fridge. Like, oh, how mm-hmm. much does he drink? And just always like trying to control him. And later him telling me that he would fill up things with water and put them back in the fridge. And I had I couldn't control it, you know, and yeah, part of my plan in life at that point was just to look like I had it together. And on the inside, I was absolutely torturing myself. I guess letting go of that control here and there can really help, too. Yeah. Um, but it takes trust and oh, faith. Absolutely. Because sometimes just that faith and trust that the process has worked for someone yep. else. Yeah. Yep. You yep. don't necessarily have to believe that it will work for you. You believe that it worked for somebody else, mm-hmm. and so then you do what is suggested. Mm-hmm. That's huge. That's For me, that's enormous. Uh, do you uh, feel like doing a, a fear-off and a, and a love-off? Sure. I thought uh, it would be fun to, to have you guys just uh, trade back and forth and... I'll just be the spectator. Maybe I'll heckle. Yeah. <laughs> the the, uh, the visitor's gallery. Yeah. You want to do fears first? Yeah, definitely. Okay. Um, I'm afraid that I'll never find a real passion to attach myself to. When we were talking about fears, the first thing that comes to thought for me is everything. <laughs> <laughs> Lots of irrational, but mm-hmm. rational to me kind of fears. Um, I'm afraid that I lost... My uh, creativity through getting help for depression. I have a dog that has been a, had a huge impact on me, and I'm always afraid she's going to die. I'm afraid this will be the lowest rated podcast of the year. <laughs> <laughs> I am afraid of abandonment in general and getting fired or just having something end without any reason, without any control over it. That is scary. And immediately. Yeah. That is a scary one. I'm afraid of being chosen to throw out a first pitch and spiking the ball into the ground. <laughs> I There's a lot of things that I love and fear. So one is dancing. Like I, There's a part of me that obviously absolutely loves it in the moment. I, especially when other people, completely afraid of it. I'm afraid of having an unplanned kid. <laughs> Interesting. Um, I am afraid of not being happy and 
finding what I really love to do. Uh, I'm afraid of being happy, actually. Yeah? Um, I don't oh, know yeah. that feeling. Uh, I don't know where that would lead to. I, I don't know the end game, uh, and that makes me afraid. I'm also totally afraid of that. Mm-hmm. Even more so than happiness is joy. Like following my dreams just mm-hmm. and actually putting myself out there. That's very – that it, makes me very afraid. Is it because it's the fear of the unknown or the fear that then you're going to be at a height which will make your fall greater? Both, yeah. I think. Um, I'm scared of going backwards. Mm-hmm. So if you were happy, then the potential then to lose the happiness would make you feel... Because I've had moments of my life where I was doing pretty well, and then it just dropped off a cliff. Mm. Uh, And that is not a good feeling at all. And I'm afraid of that happening again, for sure. Yeah, because I know people, when they first heard that, I'm afraid of being happy, were thinking, what? What?" I was kind of surprised that you said what, because people that I've talked to that deal with mental illnesses... Mm. To me, it seems like a common theme that we're all – we're afraid of being unhappy, but that's also so – It's what we know. Yeah. It's so safe. I mean, it's just yeah. a part of us it's, that it's – a, It's a blanket of comfort. It's just – Yeah. Well, I'm depressed. I can just – that's my reason for knocking out of bed. That's, that's a huge my part of my identity. For, yeah. Yeah. I know. I just need to curl up with a nice documentary about a serial killer, <laughs> overeat some butter cookies, and uh, go to bed with a nice head full of shame. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. That's what I know. So yeah. that's what I'm good at. That's, yeah. that's what yeah. I'll do. Yeah. Oh, my God. Being happy and being out in the world and a lot of these having to live up to expectations. There's a lot of fear. Was it my turn? Oh, so do you feel like then expectations would oh, yeah. be attached to oh, yeah. being being happy? So that that is going to come with um, – I have to get more accomplished because now I don't have people see me. I mean, it's, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Let's move on to uh, to loves. Um, I love double fisting coffee and soda. Nice. I have an absolute love for um, self help books, just audio books on self help, just any of that stuff. Mm-hmm. I just yeah, by choice, I absolutely love it. I love walking into a baseball stadium and. All the sights and smells that accompany that, the, the greenness of the grass and That's, cooking sausages yeah, and that, that the fir- smell of a leather glove. That first look at the green grass yeah. is just fucking amazing. Especially uh, the first game of the season. Yeah. Yeah. I have a love of talking, as you probably have figured out. <laughs> you don't strike me as overly chatty. Really? Yeah. Well, I'm trying to be. John spoke to me about this I think before. it's worked pretty well yeah. so far. Okay, yeah. good. Yeah, just not dominating the conversation. And, yeah. Um, let's see. I love – this is extremely nerdy, but I love my uh, White Sox blog community and the support they've given me through this um, and the friendship, uh, friendships I've made from it uh, in person. That's beautiful. Yeah. I don't know why that's nerdy. Well, internet friends are, uh, I guess it's, it's okay now, but uh, can be looked down upon by certain how people. how I've met a lot of my uh, previous partners. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Not acceptable. Um, I absolutely love organizing things. Anything, any opportunity to organize and make things like more situated, it's, yeah, it's like a huge hobby of mine. That feels clean. Oh, yeah. And I think it's, it's a safer, you know, yep. situation than others. And it's... It's a challenge, and it's tangible, and yeah, it just it provides a lot of things. It, 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 for me, it, it feels like there's a safe egress from stress yeah. when, I, when, I'm, when well, I'm organized. Like, okay, I'll be able to – it's almost yep. like a fire exit of, okay, yep. if the shit goes down, yep. at least my 
papers aren't all piled yeah. up and I know where this is. Well, I don't is. go to that extent. But yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, I think for me, my head's always crazy and it just spins. And so I think making to-do lists and just, yeah, organizing my room and anything. That oh, I, can... I see. So the act of organizing oh, yeah. is comforting to oh, you. Yeah. Oh, for me, the, the part that when I'm <laughs> done with it, because I fucking hate yeah. the, the... There's always more things to organize. <laughs> Yeah. I need to hire yeah. you. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I love showing off my parallel parking skills. I absolutely love, well, I guess I love dogs more than cats, but I love cats, especially this one that's like around my neighborhood that John is going to meet, that you walk to its house and then you call it and it walks you home. It's just incredible. <laughs> really? Yeah. Yeah. Wally. Yeah. He's pretty amazing. <laughs> that's awesome. He's like completely like opposite of any, like how you'd, you know, think of cats. But... Yeah. yeah. I love that moment in the summer when uh, the sky opens up and no one's prepared and everyone is just caught in this ridiculous moment of being drenched. That's a great one. We've never had that one. <laughs> That's a great one. Well, John, Megan, thank you so much for uh, for coming by and opening up. And, um, and I'm just really uh, touched by how you two, how this has brought you to closer together and I just think that is I just think it's so beautiful yeah. I'm glad I got to I'm glad I get to witness <laughs> it that's pretty cool well thank you for having us yeah thank yeah. you so much many thanks to John and Megan Bremen um, want to remind you guys um, that I'm going to be in Portland for the Bridgetown Comedy Festival I'll be doing some satire as my uh, my character uh, Republican Representative Richard Martin so if you want to come out and uh, see that I'll I'll have some uh, some more detailed information as we get closer to that date, but I'm also tossing around the idea of doing a live mental illness happy hour uh, show. It kind of depends on what guests are available and um, what venues are available. But I will also be um, recording some listeners while I'm in in Portland. So if you're a um, somebody that would uh, be interested in being recorded, um, shoot me an email and. Uh, Maybe we can get the ball rolling on that. Um, I don't know how much time I'll have available to uh, to record everybody, but um, everybody in Portland, every single person in Portland, that's my goal. Uh, I just lost my train of thought. So uh, April 18th through the 21st is, is when that is, uh, is happening. Um, I want to remind you guys that there's a couple of different ways to support the show if you feel so inclined. You can go to the website, mentalpod.com, and make either a one-time PayPal donation or my favorite, a recurring monthly doma- donation. Um, I I struggle with this because I, re- I, I want to ask more forcefully, um, more pleadingly um, for help with the monthly donations, but I'm... I'm afraid of coming across as having needs, um, but I could use some help. I could use some help. Um, even with advertising, um, I'm, I'm, uh, <laughs> I'm below the poverty line doing this, doing this show. And I know, I know it's not up to you guys to support me, but I know you get a lot out of this show. And um, if you got the money and you feel like it, it's greatly appreciated. You can you can do a recurring monthly donation for as little as five bucks a month. Um, we have some people that donate um, twenty five bucks a month, and God bless them. They're five times better than you are. <laughs> See what I do when I get uncomfortable? I have to make fun. Um, 
You can also support the show by uh, when you shop at Amazon, enter through our search portal on our on our homepage, and that way Amazon will give us a couple of nickels. Doesn't cost you anything. It's on the homepage, right hand side, about halfway down. Not to be confused with the search box for our site. Um, it'll 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 say Amazon on it. Um, and I think oh, and the other you can support the show non financially. Um, those of you that are, are struggling to, to make ends meet, I certainly don't want you to feel guilty. You can you can help spread the word through social media. That's greatly appreciated. Or go to iTunes and uh, write something nice. Give us a good rating. All right. Done with that. Got a nice stack of surveys. If you want to bail right now, I don't care. Let yourself out. We don't need you. I know the hardcore listeners are going to stay and listen to one. I don't know. Got, I got one, two, three. I've got... I've got six surveys and emails that I'm going to read. This first one was filled out by... I read that one already. We've got five. This was filled out... This is from the Shame and Secret survey filled out by a woman who calls herself broken inside out. You know that's not going anywhere good when you when, when that's, uh, that's the name they picked. Uh, she considers herself bisexual, heteroflexible. She's in her 20s, was raised in an environment that was a little dysfunctional. She writes somewhere between a little and pretty dysfunctional. I don't really know because I can't completely remember. In some ways, I know there were good times and my parents, especially my mom, did their best. At other times, I am so broken by it that I want to cut everyone but my com- but my mother completely out of my life. Um Ever been the victim of sexual abuse? She writes, yes, and I never reported it. Deepest, darkest thoughts. I was psychosexually abused by an internet predator when I was 13 and raped when I was 14. But all the sexual triggers that get me off involve control, manipulation, and rape. There are also a lot of incest triggers in there. When I watch online porn, which I, which I wish I could stop, I always search for father-daughter setups. I can't remember most of my own childhood, and I'm pretty sure I don't want to. I'm still scared of my father, even though I'm not sure what about him scares me. I think I will only feel completely free after he is dead. I just got engaged to my boyfriend, who is wonderful, but aside from him, I sometimes feel like I'm... Uh, really terrified of all men and what they can do to me and I hate that deepest darkest secrets my father hit me and my sister repeatedly as kids not violent beatings but very calculated slaps on the hands and face as forms of punishment he would also shout at us and dominate us using his large frame to tower over us when we were very small uh Sexually abused and raped, probably led directly to being hyper-promiscuous as a teenager, mostly with much older men. I carried on a frequent sexual affair with a man in his early 30s when I was 13 and 14. Alcohol abuse since age 11, drug use since age 13, overeater since age 17. Constant fluctuations with my use of all three after the first time I had consensual sex. I coerced a boy my age to have sex with me because I thought that was the only way I could behave with guys. Uh, Now we had sex, and we had sex, but in retrospect, I don't think he wanted to at all. I think I raped him, question mark. I can't remember how many people I have slept with, most of their names, how I met, or even how it happened. I've often been so drunk that I only remember leaving the scene. My sister used to practice sexual behavior on me as a child and once brought me into my parents' room to watch them have sex when I was five. I didn't know what I was seeing until years later. 
I've had STIs at least four times and have oral and genital herpes to live with. Sexual fantasies most powerful to you. Uh, rape, daddy-daughter control fantasies, manipulation of people underage. Would you ever consider telling a partner or close friend your fantasies? She writes, I don't know. I think I could tell my best friend anything and he would accept me no matter what. My fiancé has a lot of issues about sex of his own, mainly from a very sheltered upbringing, so it would take a lot of counseling before I could admit these things to him. Mainly, though, I don't want to tell anyone because I want to not be turned on by them anymore. I want it to stop. Do these secrets and thoughts generate any particular feelings towards yourself? She writes, of course, I fucking hate myself. Well, I'm sending you some... I don't know whether you want it or not, but I'm sending you some love because I... I was just really moved by, by reading that of how much pain you have inside you and how much confusion you have inside you and how difficult clarity and answers and comfort are for you to find. And boy, do I know that. Boy, do I know that. You are not alone. This is an email from a woman named Joe who writes, um, I've always had a depressive personality, a.k.a. dysthymia. It mostly manifests itself as a pessimistic view on the world with mean self-talk. I've had major depressive episodes, but always triggered by some trauma or loss, mostly personal or family illnesses, deaths, or extra stressors like a shitty boss. Until this last week, I haven't experienced an intense depression that was triggered by an insignificant event. It was a feeling of hopelessness and worthlessness without reason or warning. This hit hard, fast, and all my usual coping skills were not working. But I was prepared. You were in my head. Talk to someone. Ask for help. You are not alone. That is what I did. I talked to those around me, those that loved me. A friend that had in-depth knowledge of this disease and my fear of medication melted. My fear that this was permanent faded. The judgment of myself for not being in control of my emotions was lightened. I am, for now, comforted by the hope that my appointment in two weeks will help me get on the road to a more permanent sense of wellness. I'm still sad and on the verge of crying every moment, but I'm able to work. I'm able to move through my day, do my exercises, eat my food, and shower. It may seem like a very simple they, it may seem like very simple things, but simple is all I can do right now. Your words are with me now, and has kept my nose above the water. Thank you so very much, and I thank every one of your guests that shared their stories. Without your show, I wouldn't have found the strength to talk to someone. I wouldn't have found relief. Well, that just... Uh, I, live, I live for reading stuff like that. And it's not just that because it it's like, oh, I'm you know, this show helps people. It it, it reminds me when, like when people open up and her describing what she's going through, that's what I'm going through. That's what I've been going through. And this show is as much me talking to myself as it is talking to you guys. Um my depression has been kicking my ass these last two months and uh, 
it is all I can do to sometimes I can't I haven't even been able to open mail for the for the last month. I know I have to, but it's like it's like the mail is at the bottom of a dark, cold thirty foot pool and it's at the bottom of it. That's what it feels like going to open the mail. And my brain tells me you're just a baby, you're a pussy. Suck it up, do it. You would have died in the old pioneer west. I probably would have. I would have laid in the field and shit myself and cried and buzzards would have eaten me. And right now somebody's jacking off to that image. <laughs> oh, I made myself laugh. Um, this, I, this happened. I, I feel like I should share it with you guys. I lost the vision in my left eye for 15 minutes. Uh, two nights ago. I was sitting watching TV and I don't know if it was because I I played hockey a couple of hours earlier and I'd screwed my neck up, but all of a sudden everything on TV looked really weird and so I closed one eye and then the other and I was like, what the fuck? I literally could not see anything out of my left eye and so I got my wife and I was like, I think we need to go to the emergency room. I'm blind in my left eye. And by the time she got changed and got some clothes on, it was just barely starting to come back. And after about 10, 15 minutes, it was completely restored. But uh, So I'm going to see a doctor tomorrow, but it's like, really? On top of, on top of crushing depression, I need, to, I need to have the vision going out in one of my eyes, but I can't, I can't go to that, that fucking self-pity place because... Uh, it's so, it's such a, uh, it's such a trap to go in there and go go to the the place of why me. Um, but it does help to talk about it and say, I'm tired, I'm tired of this shit getting piled on. And now I feel like a pussy for complaining about that. This next survey is uh, filled out by a guy who calls himself Sensui S E N S U I. He is um, straight. Although he says, really not sure at this point. He's in his 20s, was raised in an environment that was a little dysfunctional, never been a victim of sexual abuse. Deepest, darkest thoughts. I sometimes think about sex with teenage girls. Um, You and three quarters of the globe. Uh, I also think about sex with transsexuals and other men, of which I feel ashamed due to being raised in a conservative Christian household. We get this one a lot on on the survey. Uh, deepest darkest secrets I once touched a girl's genitals while she was sleeping I used to lock myself in my room with 15 to 20 beers and drink in bed to reach oblivion that does sound actually kind of nice just laying in bed I never did that I never laid in bed and drank but uh, I got to tell you right now that doesn't sound like a bad call Um, when the buzz wears off that sounds like a bad call but um you gay, straight, bisexual, or asexual? Oh, I answered that one already. Um, sexual fantasy is most powerful to you. He writes, being dominated by a femdom, being abducted and raped by a group of men, women, or both. Would you ever consider telling a partner or close friend? He writes, maybe. I've never had a romantic partner, and I think I would look for one open-minded enough to handle the femdom fantasy. I would never tell anyone about the rape fantasy because I fear they would think I'm a freak. I don't think you're a freak. Um, do these secrets and thoughts generate any particular feelings towards yourself? He writes, I feel like less of a man. Um, sending you a hug, buddy. Stop beating yourself up. 
This is filled out by, um, and if you're keeping count, we're on our second to last one. This is uh, from Shame and Secrets, filled out by a woman who calls herself This Is Scary. Uh, she's straight, she's in her 40s, was raised in an environment that was totally chaotic. Um, ever been the victim of sexual abuse? She writes some stuff happened, but I don't know if it, if it counts as sexual abuse. My father washing me in the shower when I think I was around six or seven, and he was lingering a little too long with the soap on my genitals. He would also hold me down, pull my pants down, and bite me very hard on my ass. One last thing is that when I was around that age, my brothers and these boys that were good friends of the family would go into my friend's room and my friend would penetrate me and everyone else watched. I think that counts as sexual abuse. Um, again, I'm not a therapist, but I was on TV and I did host a show where we showed Smokey and the Bandit and we made banana cream pie. And... I was able to talk about the chemistry between Burt Reynolds and Jackie Gleason while rolling out a deliciously flaky crust. So I do think I have some expertise when it comes to knowing something about human beings. Now I'm sick that I was glib in this person revealing this stuff to me. I'm moving forward. Welcome to the roaring ocean that is my head. Uh, deepest darkest thoughts killing my father uh, deepest darkest secrets one time when I was somewhere around the age of eight I pretended to be married to my brother who was probably about six I didn't do anything to him but we did have our pants off wow this is horrible I feel very guilty about this I definitely never think of children as anything but children that need our protection and normal care um, sexual fantasy is most powerful to you I don't have any I obsess about my childhood and the pain from being verbally abused and viewed as an object uh, or an extension of my father. I do not exist as a human being with any needs. Oh my God, do I relate to that? I want to give you a fucking hug. I just want to give you a hug. And you know what? I want you to give me a hug. Oh. Would you ever consider telling a partner or close friend your your fantasy? She writes, I'm scared to talk about it because I don't want my husband to see how really damaged I am and leave me. I don't have family to fall back on and no job, so I would be on the street. That breaks my heart. Do these secrets and thoughts generate any particular feelings towards yourself? She writes, I am sad that I feel like I am nothing and don't even think of myself as a sexual being. Well, from what I know, About my experience with being sexualized and friends of mine who've experienced being sexualized or violated, one of the things that happens is your sexual sexuality, you either become incredibly promiscuous or you shut down. There, there's not usually a, a gray area in between. And I really encourage you to go see somebody. Um, Google Lofi therapy in the name of your city. And you can find people often for as little as $25 a session. And just know that you're worth it. And you are not alone. You are so not alone. I'm going to take it out with, um, this is from the Happy Moments survey. Yay, happiness! This is uh, filled out by a woman who uh, calls herself Megan. And um, is that our second Megan? Our third Megan, if you count our guest Megan. Let's call this the Megan Show. She is uh, straight, she's in her 30s, and um, 
her happy moment, she writes, as someone who suffers with depression, when I do feel good, I start to worry that maybe I'm just on the verge of mania. Um, oh yeah, it's fun to second guess feeling good as just another mental illness. Early this winter, I bundled up, put on my headphones, listening to a new favorite album, and headed outside. I laid in the snow and watched the black sky as the beautiful, fluffy, unique snowflakes fell down on me. I became so exhilarated I had to get up and dance around like a real crazy person. It was the first time in months that I felt like picking up my camera and making something. I took off my headphones so that I could hear the nature around me. I took my camera into the forest to a small clearing. I sat in the snow and took photos. It was wonderfully therapeutic because I had not had any will or energy to create anything in months. That night was a real turning point for me. I realized that I had been feeling much worse than I thought. I adjusted my meds and tried to make some lifestyle changes, including getting honest with my therapist. That night helped me to start coming out of the latest fog I was in. It was a fog that didn't seem so horrible because I was functioning, but looking back, I realized I needed more help. I love that because it's not like a Disney happy moment. It's like a real happy moment that even still has some imperfectness, if you want to call it that, about it. Some unresolvedness. That's uh, that's the word I was looking for. And uh, I think sometimes we fantasize that happy is going to come in this form where everything is resolved. And I think that's kind of looking at the world in kind of an, an emotional OCD way that's that's unrealistic. And I like to be reminded that you can be happy and sad at the same time. You can be feel fulfilled about a lot of things in your life and kind of empty about something in your in your life at the same time. And uh, one doesn't have to cancel the the other the other out. Um, but thank you, thank you for that, Megan. Thank you, listeners, for for being there for me. I've been corresponding with quite a few of you lately, and um, it really really helps. It really helps. Um, to know I'm not alone and I hope I hope you guys know that you're not alone thank you so much for listening I, I almost finished and I was like I think I usually say thanks for listening and I and I and then I was like should I just leave it no I better put it in Ugh. Everybody I know is bizarrely beautiful. Everybody I know is bizarrely beautifully fucked up in some weird way. Bizarrely beautifully fucked up in some weird way.